Good morning. Um, Jeremy was talking, you might be somewhat surprised to see me up here today, and I was, as getting ready for this message, I was thinking, you know, what, what would be some of the blessings that I'd be hoped to get out of today's message? Well, kind of thought of three blessings. The first one would be to Jeremy. Uh, you know, he's been kind of doing double duty here while we're looking for a pastor. And just a little plug, next week during the ABF time will be our quarterly congregational meeting. There will be an update uh, on our pastor search committee. It's been going quite well, so I'd encourage everybody to uh, put that on the calendars and make sure you're here uh, next week. Uh, the second blessing would be to me, um, as you prepare for the message, it really forces you to try to learn something very well, and I've done that. I've also had the opportunity to appreciate how much work it is, and so every Sunday when Jeremy's up here, I think I'll be just a little more thankful for uh, what he does up here. <coughs> Excuse me. Third one, I hope it's a blessing to you all, uh, the message um, that we're going to talk about today, but also the fact that, you know, with the Bible, we've been doing a series on the Bible, which is really about fundamentals, is the Bible is accessible to everybody. I mean, in a sense, I represent all of us. I don't have any Bible college, or I've never taken any formal class in Bible training, but the truth of God's Word is accessible to all of us, and that's really what we're talking about here when we're going over the Bible and what does it mean. And of course, uh, you'll probably be able to appreciate Jeremy a little more next week after having to endure this message. So uh, with that, I'll just start us in a brief word of prayer. Dear Lord, I would just ask today that your truth would become precious to all of us, that it would be something that uh, has effect on all of our life day in and day out, and that you would just give me grace this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week, uh, Jeremy talked about uh, why we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and he had five testimonies. Um, three of those testimonies that were the most important was the testimony of the Holy Spirit, testimony of Jesus Christ, and testimony of the Bible itself. And as we talked last week, the, the tools that we have here are not going to enable us to argue anybody into heaven, but this is really about the fundamentals of the faith. What do we as believers believe and why we believe it, and the Bible is crucial. It is the underpinning of our beliefs. If you go on Martinsdale, we have articles of faith, and the first article of faith that we have is on the scriptures, and I'd just like to read that to you because it's what we're talking about is going again back to the fundamentals. It says, we believe the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the inspired word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings infallible and God-breathed. And it's not insignificant that as our first article of faith, and today we're just going to kind of talk about that and expand that a little bit about what, what is the Bible and specifically the inerrancy and authority of the Bible. And that word inerrancy was used in our article of faith, and we will kind of explore that and see what it means and what it doesn't mean. But before we do that, um, I have a really short uh, YouTube, that I would like to just talk a little bit about this concept of truth and absolute truth. So hopefully it works here. Hey, Mike, where do you have to? Uh, just diagramming this accident with my State Farm Pocket Agent app. Hmm. You can also get a quote and pay your premium with this thing. I thought State Farm didn't have all those apps. Where'd you hear that? The internet. And you believed it? Yeah. They can't put anything on the internet that isn't true. Where'd you hear that? The, the internet. internet. Oh, look, here comes my date. I met him on the internet. He's a French model. Uh, bonjour. State Farm, more mobile than ever. 
get to a better state. Well, the point of that video wasn't so much to, to buy car insurance, but it, we, we find it somewhat humorous that this poor young woman has based her absolute truth, her values, on something so uh, unreliable as the internet. We've all had those things from Nigerian princes asking us to uh, send them some money <coughs> in, uh, in return for a large sum, a princely sum. But <clears throat> the thing is, is what she has done, <clears throat> we laugh because of the results. She's uh, going to go on a date with someone that we suspect is neither French nor a model. And uh, <laughs> we hope it turns out OK for her, but we're not sure. But her belief in her absolute truth is going to lead her in places that are not very good because the truth isn't the truth. However, she has done something here that people will criticize us for doing but it's something that has to be done when we talk about absolute truth. And that's this concept. She's using circular reasoning. She's saying, well, the internet is true. Nothing on the internet it cannot be true. And how do you know that? Well, the internet told me. And you say, well, that seems a funny way of reasoning things. It's circular reasoning. But in, the, in all truth systems, that does happen. And people will try to hide that. And they will try to make fancy words. And they will go around in all sorts of patterns. But we don't do that here. We just are going to be very straightforward in how we come to know what truth is. Someone may have a belief system and says, I think you know, what's logical is really what truth is. I can determine what truth is by my logic. And you say, well, how do you know logic can tell you that it is true? Well, it seems logical to me. Well, you've just used logic to say logic is what provides it. Or you say, it's my experience. My experience tells me what is true and is not true. Well, how do you know your experience tells you what's true? Well, that's been my experience. Again, they're using experience to put experience. Well, we've been going through the series. We've been using the Bible to show us and inform us and tell us that the Bible is true. And that is some circular reasoning. But it is necessary because the Bible is absolute truth. And you cannot use anything less than absolute truth to prove absolute truth. And again, that's kind of hard concept to do that. But you know, we're not ashamed or apologetic by the fact that we use the Bible to prove itself. Now, we have a great advantage over the internet. In fact, the Bible is true. And instead of having a belief system that is based upon things that are not true. And there's been many, many belief systems throughout the human history. And they end up badly if they're not based upon truth. So today we're going to talk about truth. And that takes us to our, our first point here, which is the scriptures are inerrant, which means that they are true. And if you turn to John chapter 7, <clears throat> 17, I'm sorry, John chapter 17. This is uh, at the Last Supper. Um, this is Jesus praying to the Father for his disciples. Judas has already left. He's on his way to betray Jesus. So these are some very precious words by our Savior, uh, starting in verse 14. It says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now what I'd like us to focus on a little bit at the end here is Christ is proclaiming that God's word, which we have in the scripture, is truth. And it's, it's a little more than just saying that God's word is true. Uh, if you look at the, the construction of that sentence, he's not using 
tr saying true as in an adjective, but truth as in a noun, saying that the word is truth. It's not true in the sense that we can compare it to other things and say, well, yeah, this is true because I know this, and so I can determine that the Bible is true. The Bible is the standard of truth. It is truth itself. The only way we would know if something is true or not true is from the word of God. And again, that kind of goes back to this circular reasoning idea, but it is absolutely necessary when we are talking about absolute truth, which God's word is, is it is embodies truth. So that kind of comes to our first point, which is really the most important. The scriptures are truth. Um, of course, we could probably end today and get out early, but uh, we will continue on since there are more points uh, to talk about the scriptures are inerrant. Um, no need to turn there, but uh, if we look in Psalms 119, 160, we see that the entirety of your word is truth, uh, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So when we talk about the scripture being truth itself, it's the whole scripture that's truth, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are not things that we can just jettison and say, well, that's not truth, and this is truth. It's the entire scripture that is truth. And even above that, if we look at Proverbs 35, it says, every word of God is pure or true. So not only is every part of the Bible, Old and New Testament, the entirety of it is true, but also each word is true. So the pieces are true, the sum is true, and it is truth itself. So that comes up to our second point, that all scripture is truth. Now we come back, uh, and then I would like to, if you could, turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. And here, starting in verse 17, it says, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. What I'd like us to focus on from this passage is this statement in which it is impossible for God to lie. And if you ponder that for a while, that, that seems kind of an incredible statement. We think of God, God can do anything. He's all powerful, he's all knowing, God can do anything. And yet here, it's saying there's something that God cannot do, and that is God cannot lie. Well, God will not do anything that is contrary to his nature, because it's God's nature. And here we see that God does not lie. Well, why doesn't God lie? Because God is truthful. That is his nature to be truthful. So when we are reading God's word, it reflects the nature and character of God himself. God is a truthful God. Therefore, his words are truthful. And so that comes back to our third point as we talk about the meaning of inerrancy in which it means that the scriptures are true. The scriptures are the word of a truthful God. And I have some other references there. I won't go through all of them, but if you, you might have some time this week, you could look them up and kind of ponder that thought. And even though we aren't spending lots of time on it, it is a very, very deep thought because everything else that we go and we do and all of our doctrine, is it based on truth or is it based on something less than truth like the internet? And it's, it is truth. Um, next point we want to talk about is about inerrancy is the fact that these scriptures are inspired. And that was a word that if you remember <coughs> we have in our 
first article of faith about the scriptures that, that they are inspired. Uh, well, what does inspired mean? Um, in Hebrews, if you're still there, you just kind of jump up to chapter 1, verse 1. And it talks, and it says, uh, Hebrews 1 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So in Hebrews, we're seeing that God has given us his word, and he's used uh, the prophets of the past, a select group of men, to uh, write this message down. But he's done it in different times and in different ways. And there are many different ways that God has use this process of inspiration. There are times when God has directly dictated to the prophets what his words to be. If we look at John, uh, when he's on the island of Patmos and he's in a vision and he's writing revelations, we see Christ says to John, write thus to the church. And it's very specific. He's giving him exact words. We can see that in Isaiah where God is saying, and the Lord has said, and there are exact words that God has dictated. Uh, That's kind of on the the one extreme of how God has given the words exactly. He's used other methods. If we look at Luke, Luke talks about at the beginning how he has compiled, he's used historical research and he's compiled those things based upon eyewitness accounts. Uh, There are other ways, there's dreams, there's visions, there's actually hearing the voice of God. So God's used many different ways to communicate to uh, these men, Um, but What's important, though, is that at the end, uh, we, will see, we will see that at the end, it is God's word, and it's not, it's not the men's word. So it starts out, our first point is that inspiration is through men in various ways. So God has chosen to give us our, the word of God through men in various ways. Uh, well, let's look a little more at that process. If we look um, at Second Peter Chapter 1, uh, 19 through 21, uh, I'll just read it for you. Um, and, it's, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this process of inspiration involves the Holy Spirit working in, in, in these lives of these prophets, these holy men of God. And it's interesting, if you look carefully at that verse, it's really talking about two sides of a coin. It says, the prophecy never came by the will of man. So it's discounting. It's saying that the will of these prophets, it wasn't their will that they were going to write this. It was as the Holy Spirit moved it. So they've taken out this idea that this, these are words and ideas and thoughts of men, even though God used these men's background, experience, and education to have them write that. And we see and reflected in these writings um, these men's experiences, what the words themselves are God's words as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So that's our second point. By the Holy Spirit were the scriptures inspired so that we have actual truth in the inerrant word of God. And then our final point on inspired, as I mentioned, is that that the result, the final result is that these scriptures are God's words themselves. And I'll just uh, read a brief passage in Corinthians. And here Paul is uh, speaking, 
And he says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So Paul recognizes that God has used him in this process of inspiration to write the commandments of the Lord. Paul says, I write, but he doesn't say, I write and these are my commandments. He says, I write and these are the commandments of the Lord. So in that sentence, we see this kind of uh, summary of the inspiration process where God is using Paul. Paul's quite aware of it. And, but, he, but at the end, they become the commandments of the word. So the process of inspiration ensures us that these are God's words uh, as written to us. Now, uh, when we looked at our statement of faith, uh, it talked about original manuscripts and that the process of an inspiration, we put that, uh, we, we put that on the original manuscripts when God inspired Moses or when he inspired Paul or Peter to write something. When they wrote that down, those scriptures as written down were inspired. They were the inspired word of God. We take some criticism from people to say, okay, if that's your inspiration and inerrancy is placed on the original manuscripts, the original writings, do you have any of those? Well, no, I mean, those, many of those are thousands, would have been thousands and thousands of years old. But we do have them because God has been faithful to preserve those words uh, over time and through history. Uh, and uh, first we'll look how they've been preserved. Well, they've been preserved because God has been the one that's preserved those. If we look at Matthew 24, 35, I'll just read it for you. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So here the scripture is stating that God's words, when he utters these words, they are not going to pass away. They are eternal. Again, this is a reflection of the nature of God. God is an eternal God. His words are eternal. God is a truthful God. His words are truthful. So the nature of God's words, they are not going to pass away. They will be preserved. I think, and if you would turn with me, we'll look at uh, one particular example of how God preserved his word. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 36, this is just sort of an example of how God preserves his own word. We start in verse 1, chapter 36 of Jeremiah. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of, the, of, take a, scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations, from the day I spoke to you, and from the days of Josiah even to this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So again, we see this process of inspiration where God has spoken to Jeremiah and he's commanded Jeremiah to actually write these words down. And Jeremiah did that. And in the scroll, it was read in the temple and the princes heard it. Eventually the scroll winds up with the king and he starts to read it. And he's not very happy about it. He does not like what's been written down. In fact, he gets so angry about it that he burns the scroll. That was the original manuscript as written down by Jeremiah's scribe. So we jump down to verse 27. Let's see what happens. And after the king had burned the scroll with the words, 
which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. So it didn't matter. The king burned the original manuscript. It was gone. There was no other copy. Well, it is not too hard for God then just to have Jeremiah write another copy because God's not going to forget. And again, that process of inspiration, he writes another copy. And of course, we still have that today. We have the book of Jeremiah. So God is active in this process of preservation. Let's not be fooled in thinking it's just, oh, well, it's probably pretty good or I think it's fairly accurate. No, God has been in this process of preserving the word of God that we have today. Um, a little point, and not only has it been preserved, I think the, the level and detail that it's been preserved is really remarkable. If you remember last week, Jeremy um, had a, uh, he, he shared with us from Matthew how Jesus was arguing with the Sadducees and he, he presented the argument about the resurrection. And in that argument, he used the scriptures that Moses had written, and the whole argument turned on the fact that God had said, I am the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, instead of I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jeremy's point was is that even the, the tense of that particular verb was enough that Jesus was able to hang his whole argument about the resurrection on it. But that's also not only the aspect of the testimony of the scriptures, but it also gives us confidence of the preservation of the scriptures. Because when Jesus was quoting the scripture, and everyone was familiar with that, that scripture was already ancient text at that point. You know, 2,000 years ago, what Moses wrote was, at that time, was over 1,000, 1,500 years old at that point. So Jesus was able to quote and use a very, very small piece of the scripture to produce his argument, and, and it was, had been preserved so well that he could do that over the 1,500 years. So it shows, shows us that even the smallest part of the scripture uh, has been preserved. Um, Jeremy also mentioned last week, as far as a testimony about the manuscripts, that's also a testimony to the preservation of the scriptures. Um, he talked about how many copies of the, of the manuscripts are available and that the Bible itself is in a class by itself. There are no other ancient manuscripts that even come close to having the number of ancient manuscripts available. And uh, as I was reading about that, it's even more amazing than that, that if you even go to the early church fathers' teachings, the scripture has been quoted so much that they can go to the early church fathers' teachings and they can recreate all the New Testament, except for maybe three or four verses, just from the notes of people quoting scripture and sermons. So there is ample evidence that what we have today is the accurate uh, reproduction of what was in the original manuscripts as inspired. And uh, we also have archeology span can confirm the historical accuracy of the scriptures. Now I use that word confirm, and that's different than prove because I mentioned that absolute truth can only be proved by absolute truth. Archaeology is not a tool that can prove to us whether the Bible is true or not, but it can confirm. Uh, and, there, and Jeremy mentioned one example. There's many examples around uh, of archaeological findings. Uh, if, if you happen to be on the internet, not everything on the internet's not true, but there are a few things. 
Uh, I was looking up, there is currently an exhibit that's going around the United States called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it's a little football-shaped piece of clay that has writing on it uh, from King Cyrus. And if you remember, last week again, Jeremy mentioned the prophecy in Isaiah about Isaiah, about Cyrus being the king that would restore the Israelites back uh, to the promised land, to Jerusalem and restore the temple. And yet, um, that prophecy happened 150 years before Cyrus was even born and mentions his name. Well, here we have archaeological confirmation. There's this piece of clay that's 2,600 years old, and it talks about Cyrus. And it talks about Cyrus restoring uh, a group of people back in Babylon. Now, it's actually some Babylonian deities. It's not uh, talking about the historical account that we read in Ezra, which was a different account. But the similarities are really astonishing. The format and what is said on this little piece of clay is very similar in style to what was said in Ezra. It was just a different event. So we see essentially a politician in one area, he's talking to them about their gods. And when he's in Jerusalem, he's talking about the gods of the Hebrews. And it confirms, but it does not prove. Uh, in fact, people who are dead set against the Bible will say, well, see, it disproves it because it doesn't actually mention about Jerusalem. It's like, well, it was a different event. How does that disprove it? But I think a lot of times in archaeological discovery, there's a number of people that come to it with a viewpoint of not believing the Bible. Anyway, archaeology confirms the historical accuracy. So I'll just kind of sum up here uh, inerrancy. I've put in your handout a definition uh, by Grudem uh, in Systematic Theology. It says, inerrancy means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. And if you kind of ponder that definition, it's a very careful definition. Um, and that's important because uh, nowadays the people will attack the church about their beliefs and the inerrancy of the Bible. Uh, and even worse than that, sometimes in the churches, people will take the meaning of inerrancy and they will change the meaning and they'll say it means one thing and doesn't mean something else. Uh, we see this a lot of times where people try to change the meaning of the word to win their argument. Instead of calling it pro-abortion, they call it pro-choice. And so the fact that you change the words, try to win the argument through trickery of language. Um, there ha we do have on the back uh, table a document that's called uh, the Chicago, I think it's uh, Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. It was back in like the late 70s, a bunch of theologians and pastors got together and they tried to really sit down and make these points to say, what does inerrancy mean? And it's, a, it's a good document, it's got like 19 different points. Obviously we didn't cover 19 points this morning, but it really defines what inerrancy is. I wanna take a little time though and look at some of the things that the inerrancy of the scripture does not mean because people will try to say the scriptures are incorrect, uh, but they're making statements about what inerrancy is when it's not what inerrancy is. Uh, I'll just give some examples. We look at, here in your handout, I talk about ordinary language. Uh, inerrancy does not mean that the Bible cannot use ordinary language to communicate. The Bible was designed by God to communicate to us so he's going to use ordinary language. Um, but some people will criticize the Bible when it uses ordinary language and say, see, the Bible's not true. You can't believe anything in it. The Bible's false. Christianity's false. 
Example, Psalms 113, verse 3. I'll read that to you. It says, from the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. And critics, atheists will say, see, you, you Christians say that the Bible's all true and everything in the Bible's true, and it talks about the sun rising and setting. And we know from science and the study of the solar system that the earth actually rotates on its axis, and so it only appears that the sun rises and sets. So the Bible's all wrong. Can't believe anything about it. Well, the Bible is simply using ordinary language to describe what we see when we're on earth. It appears that the sun rises and it appears the sun set. And we still use that language today. If you watch the weather in the nightly news, they're going to say sunrise tomorrow is a certain time and sunsets a certain time. Ordinary language. It does not disprove the Bible as being true when it uses ordinary language. Um, the Bible inerrancy, the Bible also used common measurements and numbers. I actually had this example um, uh, used against me when I was younger. I had an atheist friend, and we were in math class, and he said, you, you know, you're crazy being a Christian. The Bible's not true. You say it's true, but I can prove it's not true. And he actually talked about this particular verse. It's in 1 Kings 7.23, and this is describing some of the temple furniture that Solomon had made, and it said he made a sea of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Well, if you go back to your geometry class and you say, well, okay, if I know the circumference of a circle is 30 cubits, I divide by pi, I should be able to calculate the diameter, and you come up with 9.55 cubits. And the Bible says it's 10 cubits, so the Bible's wrong. You can't believe anything the Bible says. Christianity is wrong. Well, that's not true either. I mean, if you could set, if you spend a little more time looking at this, it later on describes that the basin, it was a very big basin, and so it had to have very thick, and it says the thickness of the basin was a handbreadth. Well, if you make the assumption that the circumference is measured on the inside of the bowl, and it was measured brim to brim, which would be the outside diameter, you add two thicknesses of the bowl, and you get 10 cubits. Well, that's really not even the point, even if it didn't add up mathematically, because the Bible, a number of times, will use numbers like 5,000 men were fed. Well, was the intent to say that there was not 4,999 men and not 5,001 men, that there was exactly 5,000? No, it was a number to help use in common terms and common numbers to explain that it approximate size of the crowd. We do that in our language today. I would tell you the U.S. national debt is $17 trillion. Well, is it really $17 trillion? Well, no, I don't know if anybody knows the number, and even if I did have the number, it would change by the time we got to the end of the message. It'd probably be another $10 million. <laughs> but it's, it's common language. I'm going to say it's a big number. Uh, the Bible also uses free quotations. That's just the idea that someone may quote another piece of scripture, and they may not say that quote word for word, but they're quoting the intent or what the passage means, and we do that, uh, we do that in our language too. And you may in a report have a word for a word with the quotes around it, but it's quite common for people to use free quotations, and the Bible does that, and that does not change the term of inerrancy. Also, uncommon grammar and spelling. There may be instances where the spelling doesn't meet the standards. Um, maybe spelled a different way or the grammar may not be the same and they say see that's a grammatical error That's a spelling error. Therefore the Bible's not true and you can't believe it and everything's false. Well, no It's again the Bible uses common language and it may use some uncommon grammar to get its point across 
Someone might say, you know, I ain't doing that, and the Bible may record that. Well, that's maybe what was actually said. Uh, maybe that's how that person actually spoke, but the meaning is still there. Uh, and then I come to the, the final point, is that there are difficult passages in the Bible. Um, I'll read 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 15, and this is uh, Peter talking about the writings of uh, Apostle Paul. And also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some hard things to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So Peter is recognizing that there may be some hard things to understand in the scripture. Uh, but I would caution a little bit. That's kind of the point I want to make. But I want to caution, uh, don't, don't misunderstand that, that the uh, Bible and the gospel is something hard to understand. It was written, it has a clarity, and it was written for us to understand. In fact, Peter goes on that uh, people who don't understand these are maybe unstable. He's actually putting some of that onto the people themselves, that they are not taking the time to learn it, or maybe they even have uh, some uh, opinion or some prior position where they would want to uh, distort the passages. But even if there are difficult passages for us to understand, that does not discount that the Bible is inerrant, that it is true. There are many truths that uh, we uh, don't understand, but they are true. Um, that brings us to my final uh, point, was that if the scriptures are inerrant, then they must be authoritative. Um, truth, absolute truth by itself, brings authority just by the fact that it is true. Uh, to illustrate that point, Gravity is a law of nature that acts in certain ways. And if I go up on a 30-story building and I say, well, you know, gravity might be true to you, but it's not true to me. I choose not to believe gravity because I don't want to believe gravity. But you believe gravity, that's fine, but I don't believe gravity. And I jump off this 30-story building. Gravity will still have authority over me. And when I hit the ground, I will uh, experience consequences, probably death, because I, I did not choose to respect the authority of gravity. So absolute truth has authority whether you believe it or not. Um, but I give a definition here. Again, this is from Grudem and Systematic Theology. It says, authority means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. And that's a pretty heavy statement because uh, maybe it's, you can read the Bible, but when you read it, you're like, does this apply? Should I, should I obey it? Well, yes, if they're God's words. If you disobey or disbelieve what's in the Bible, you're disobeying and disbelieving God. It comes with the authority of God. We'll look a little bit on how much of the scriptures does this apply to. Well, if we look in 2 Timothy 3.16, of course, all everybody want is this very familiar passage. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Again, we have that word inspiration. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, Timothy, it's not only that all scripture is inspired, but all scripture is profitable. So all the scriptures uh, applies to us, our life. Uh, and not only that, if we look at um, what areas, if, if all scripture applies, what areas of our life does it apply to? Um, if we look at Deuteronomy 12.32, it says, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it, you shall not add to it, nor take away from it. And in your little handout I've got it, it says applies to all areas that it addresses. And you're sort of like, well, I'm 
I don't know if that's really a satisfying explanation because what areas are you talking about? Well, the Bible addresses certain areas and there are certain areas that it may be silent on. And in Deuteronomy, we see that there's this caution not to add to the scripture or to take away from it. And at first you may think, well, it's saying you don't, don't take your Bible and pencil in an extra word and say, well, that was an original manuscript or take your eraser and erase a word. It certainly means that not to add or take away words, but it's even more broad than that because it's adding or taking away from the scripture. You can add to the scripture and take a scripture and say, this scripture says such and such, and this is how it should be applied, and it's misapplied. You're taking a scripture and misusing it. You are adding to it. You may take away from it. The scripture may have something to say to you and how you relate to your wife, how you relate to your boss, how you relate to your government, how your government should relate to you. And you say, no, that was back Back then, you know, I don't really think they really wanted to address uh, sexual morality. Today in our modern world, it doesn't apply. Well, that's taken away from the scripture. I think today's modern world, we typically take away the scripture uh, more than add to it. Uh, but we need to, uh, the scripture applies to all areas that addresses. And as you get into it, you're going to find that it is quite extensive to the areas that it addresses. Uh, it addresses many areas from how we live, how we work, uh, and, and so we need to be obedient to that. Um, I have a point, scripture is the final authority uh, under, and if we look at Romans 3, 4, it says, let God be true, but every man a liar. And, and really the point is, is, it comes back to, since the Bible's the absolute truth, there may be things in there that the culture says, this is, this is not what we believe, Everybody in the whole world said, no, it's not true, but God says it is true. Well, it is true, because everybody can be a liar. We cannot judge the scriptures based upon cultural norms or some other means. It, it is the final authority, and we judge everything else based upon the Bible. So let, every man, let God be true and every man a liar. Um, how do we understand the scriptures? Uh, if they're authoritative, we need to understand what they say to us and about our lives. And that is through the Holy Spirit. So they must be understood by the Spirit. If we look in Luke 24, 44 through 45, um, and it's, this is Jesus. He said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. This is after the resurrection. It's before the ascension. That all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So Christ is opening their understanding. Sometimes if you're not a believer, there are things in the scripture that you won't understand. Because now uh, after Pentecost, all believers have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works within us uh, to inform us about what the scriptures are saying. And so, uh, you know, the... The scriptures are powerful, and even a non-believer, they can work in their life, but aspects of the scripture will not be understood until, until a believer is, uh, has the Holy Spirit to instruct, instruct them in how to understand the scriptures. And that kind of comes up to the final point, which is really an application point under the scriptures are inerrant and must be authoritative. If we look at Deuteronomy 12:28, it says, Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And this, this concept that is, uh, we want to, if it's really God's word, then we should obey it. And that's not an easy thing. 
God's given us the Holy Spirit not only to understand, but also to uh, sanctify us as we go through this process of obeying the scriptures. And, and that's kind of the summary point. And uh, as I, I'll just kind of do a summary here, we have shown that the scriptures are true, that they're the words of God communicated to us through men by the process of inspiration, and that these inspired words have been faithfully preserved for us today so that with confidence we can read these words as God's words for us. Not only can we read these words, we can understand these words through the working of the Holy Spirit. And as such, these truthful words from a truthful God require that we must obey. So that's kind of the summary of our point today. The scriptures are inerrant. Uh, they are authoritative. And uh, being such, uh, we have a duty to obey what God has told us. And I think we do have time for the last song. I'll just close this with prayers as the worship team comes up for the final song. Dear Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have written it so that we have access to know what you require of us. We thank you for your word, which is the means by salvation, which we can understand the truth of the way of salvation. We ask that uh, we would be more diligent in our love and understanding of the word. And um, we just thank you for uh, a love that is greater than we could ever know on our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>